come before the Lord to praise Him today on His day. Those beloved of God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For Old Testament reading, Psalm 110, Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. And friends, uh, this psalm, of course, one of the prime messianic psalms, teaches us much about our Lord. A key thing being, and I'll connect it with uh, that edifying work that ministers are stirring you up to, but a key thing being verse 3. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. So the day of the Christ's power is now, right? Uh, we are the volunteers. We've been made willing, as I referred to in the prayer of invocation. He's changed our wills. He's changed our hearts. He's made us desire to be here on the Lord's day. We could be doing other things. He's made us desire to do those love uh, works of love and edification to one another. So friends, brothers and sisters, let us pursue our calling as volunteers in the day of his power building up his kingdom for his glory. We're reading now our sermon text from Romans. The six first verses of chapter 1. The sermon will be focusing on uh, just a part of verse 1 of the first chapter. But here now God's inspired and infallible word. Paul, bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called by Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to open your word and look at it a bit more closely with your saints here. I pray that the words you've given me would hold close to your meaning, Lord, that you would constrain my thoughts to that which is holy and pure and edifying, that you would give grace to each person here, that these uh, words of life would fall on fertile soil, that you'd protect these seeds from the evil one. They would not be snatched, but they would be watered that they would be nurtured, that they would grow into uh, trees of life uh, for individuals and for families. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a joy uh, to be with you for all of worship today and certainly for this preaching opportunity. Uh, at our home church in Omaha, I preach occasionally, every couple months, depending on uh, the pastor needing study time or maybe illness and such. And it was uh, last fall after finishing a multi-year project in some other pulpits where I was serving, uh, preaching through Genesis, decided to take on Romans, and to take it very slowly. And so my first sermon was on Paul, 
and then servant, and then we're here at Jesus Christ. So we're at the third part of the first verse. And of course, the book of Romans, you're well familiar with it. It's Martin Luther who called it the chief book of the New Testament. He said it's the purest gospel and deserves not only to be known word for word by every Christian, I admit that's a, uh, a challenge to memorize, a worthy challenge. He then continued, but to be the subject of his meditation day by day, the daily bread of his soul, the more time one spends on it, the more precious it becomes and the better it appears. And then another writer from the Reformation era said, Romans is a comprehensive statement of evangelical doctrine. No book of scripture comes so near to being a body of divinity, that is, a teaching of the sum of Christian doctrine. So in that first, just to kind of catch you up to speed very briefly, uh, in the first sermon in the series, Paul, I really just want to say, who is this Paul? We all as Christians talk about Paul. We all have this inside language of knowing he was Saul and became Paul. And uh, the key points I brought out there in three parts, was looking at who was he before his conversion, how was he converted, and who he became by virtue of his conversion. And of course, the obvious thing is there, while we none of us have the exact same biographical history, we didn't live in the same time, same place, we have different gifts, different parents, etc., there's remarkable similarities, right? Our lives apart from Christ. We're converted in different ways, but to know Christ, we must have changed hearts. We must be converted. And then certainly now that we're converted, again, we're going to be different. None is an apostle. None has those gifts and that calling in our era, but yet there are similarities. So uh, in that sermon, we learned that, yes, Paul, unique man of God, but remarkably similar to us, if we're honest with where our hearts were before Christ and the challenges and the opportunities with us now in Christ. Then secondly, the second word there, uh, bond servant in the New King James, or servant, I think you're reading maybe from the ESV, and that's what I'll use the word servant a little more simply there. Paul was a servant, right? Again, he was a servant in a unique way, being called to apostleship, but all Christians are servants. It's just inherent to the Christian life to be a servant. And today then, we come to the one who made Paul made us. The one who converted Paul converted us. The one who guides us in sanctification, Lord willing, and bringing us day to day into greater degrees of holiness. The one we serve. And who is that? Stated clearly in the text here. Jesus Christ. So the basic question to consider briefly today, who is this Jesus? To say that it's important for us to get this right is an understatement. Uh, It goes without saying that Christian doctrine Christian preaching, the Christian church, the Christian life are built upon Christ. And if we go amiss here, we've clearly got trouble. And sadly, many people do go astray here. There are many religious organizations as well as individuals that go far, far astray because they don't have, they don't follow, they don't know the true Jesus. So who is the Jesus Christ whom Paul served? who is the Jesus Christ that we must be careful to serve. Certainly it would be beyond the scope of our time today uh, to get into a comprehensive discussion and investigation into the doctrine of Christ, his person, his work, and hypostatic union and all of that. I would greatly encourage you to meditate, whether it be on the portions of the three forms of unity, uh, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith that you have in your Trinity hymnals, Uh, other tools are wonderful out there. Three books I'll toss out briefly. Perhaps your elders are familiar with them. Uh, The newest one, I believe, is uh, God and the Gospel by John Piper. 
Another one, a little older than that, Jesus Divine Messiah by Robert Raymond, former uh, uh, teacher at Knox Seminary in Florida, now gone to be with the Lord. And then the third, from a little further back, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. So I hope that today's discussion can whet your appetite and uh, may the Lord direct you in further study and having your heart really drawn out to the Lord through that study. But not being able to cover everything the Bible has to say about Jesus Christ, I do want to focus on some very important parts of the Pauline. Or let us narrow it even further, though we'll be touching on other uh, aspects of Paul's writing. But within the Pauline doctrine of Jesus Christ is the Roman epistolary view of Jesus. Even then, I'm not going to cover all the bases, but the important highlights to tie that together. So first, we'll look at what the name actually means. Then a bit at the, uh, what I see as a standout feature of who Jesus is in terms of his works. And then the results of this. What is the whole point of knowing who Jesus is in terms of addition, definition of his name? What's the importance of his works? What is the result of all of this? And together, they absolutely affirm, and not questioning your knowledge of this, but rather to encourage you, or maybe for the young ones, uh, to come to a saving knowledge of this, but for us to affirm that Jesus Christ is the divine Messiah who reconciles us, who restores us to right relationship with God. So, let's look at this text and what it leads us to as we answer the question, who is the Jesus Christ that Paul refers to? Beginning with his name. Jesus Christ, as it's in the text here. Uh, the simplest part of the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is to define the name. Uh, we'll begin with the lexical definition. Jesus, as you're probably familiar, from the Greek, Jesus, and then Christ from Christos. Jesus uh, is merely the English pronunciation of the word Jesus, which is transliterated from the Greek. But a transliteration, which is to say taking the sounds of Greek into English, doesn't actually give us a definition. It doesn't tell us the root of the word, the significance as to how it's used by the writers here, etc. It's merely making it so that we can pronounce it according to the English alphabet. Uh, this is a trans it's not a translation. Uh, it is a making the sounds meaningful to us. With regard to meaning, uh, we are actually told, it's not something we need to conjecture, we don't need to go outside of the Bible to try and understand what this word means, but the inspired writer of Scripture in Matthew 1.21 tells us that Jesus was so named because for he will save his people from their sins. So while Jesus performed many miracles, uh, saved many people from physical illness and demonic issues, his namesake task, the reason why he's called Jesus, is not because he saved people from demonic oppression, not because he saved them from whatever illness. His namesake task was to save his people from their sins. That's why he was named Jesus. And recall the observation given when he forgave sins, specifically to the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. Skeptics ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's a very important question. You know, taken at face value, without their skepticism and their attacks and doubting suspicions, that's a valid question. If said in faith, it leads to a blessed answer. But of course, the unbelieving Jewish scribes in that context were not asking it in faith. They joined it with an accusation that then follows. They said, why does he speak blasphemies? They knew correctly that God alone can forgive sins. And that they were right. Sadly, they also thought that Jesus was usurping that divine 
prerogative. And in that they were wrong. God does forgive sins only, and Jesus is the divine Messiah. Therefore, he could, did, and does forgive sins. Again, to emphasize, he is the Savior. Jesus is so named because he saves his people from their sins. This is further confirmed when we look at the Hebrew root of Jesus. So remember, Jesus comes from the Greek, Jesus, and then we look at the Hebrew root behind that, which is Yeshua. Hebrew meaning of Yeshua. God is salvation. Very consistent. No debate there. So Jesus is the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew Yeshua, meaning God is salvation. Yeshua, commonly pronounced in English, is Joshua. So Joshua, the son of Nun in the Old Testament book, and Jesus, the son of Mary, those names, when spoken in Hebrew, are the same. And it's important to recognize a whole separate topic of typology. But Joshua saved his people historically, and Jesus saved his people eternally. Both of them, Yeshua, if you pronounce it in the Hebrew. But Joshua merely, it is important, of course, but he simply historically saved his people, and Jesus saved his people eternally. A little trivia fun fact, maybe for the children to appreciate, but two Yeshuas went to Jericho, right? <laughs> Joshua in the time of Rahab, and Jesus in the time of Zacchaeus, both in Jericho. So, thus far we have a simple definition of Jesus. The first part of his name here by Paul in Romans chapter 1. From the mouth of God and via the pen of the inspired writers, we see that Jesus means Savior. Very simple. Well, moving on to the second part of his name, uh, or his title, as I'll note later. Uh, the second part in Romans 1, verse 1, is Christ. Christ, transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which translates the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, in John 1, again, like we had in Matthew, we have an inspired definition. We don't have to wonder, we don't have to trust the lexicons or other pagan writers to inform us on what these words mean. In John 1, we have, we have found the Messiah. We even get a translation to tie it together for us, which is translated the Christ. So from the pen of the divinely inspired author, we understand that Christ means Messiah. And it's in John 4. We have both an affirmation of that divine tied together of the Hebrew and the Greek, but also from the mouths of Jesus himself identifying that he is this Messiah. In John 4, I know that Messiah is coming. Sorry, he's, he's uh, asked this question by the woman, right? I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And then the narrator tells us, Jesus said to her, I am he. From the mouth of Jesus, we know that he is the Messiah. That woman asks a faith-filled question, and she received a blessed answer. As I hinted a moment ago, uh, Christ is technically not a name. Uh, it's a title, uh, like Mr. or Teacher, uh, unique to Paul's writing. He kind of uses it as a name. It's an interesting feature of how Paul, especially in Romans, uh, crafts his references to the Messiah. But it means anointed. Uh, or the anointed one. Uh, and that's the manner of a man being anointed to his office. Uh, traditional Jewish uh, messianic expectation uh, referred, in terms of anointing, primarily to the offices of judging and ruling. And Paul does, on occasion, specifically refer to Jesus Christ in that capacity. But he places special emphasis on the priestly office. That is to say, interceding for us, right? Making us, uh, providing an acceptable sacrifice for us. 
And especially, you're going to be familiar with the suffering servant motif, right? From the Old Testament, especially Isaiah. Uh, and we see that in his humiliation and his death. Uh, throughout 1 Corinthians and Romans, we see that. So, step back a moment to take it together. We have Paul's witness by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Mary's child is the one who fulfilled the Old Testament expectation of the Savior. Just by the name of Christ, not having to get into Hebrew grammar rules, not having to get to a broad spectrum theology of Christ and having to argue against all these little mistakes that JWs and other cults and Muslims, etc. make, not even having to go there. Merely, with a few data points I presented to you, in the inspired scriptures, just by his name and title, we have it on sure testimony that Jesus is the divine Messiah. So I pray that the uh, several verses I say, cited for you will be helpful in your own discussions, whether it be with family members, with co-workers, in our own hearts, to be settled and sure as to what the witness of Scripture tells us. God himself tells us what the words Jesus and Christ mean. He is the anointed Savior, the divine Messiah. Two applications I want to insert here before uh, moving on to the second main point of our sermon this morning, and a significant one at that. First, as you do with the images of Christ. You might think, whoa, non-sequitur. How did that come across? <laughs> right? Uh, this actually arose in some conversation I had with co-workers. I work at my day job, so to speak, with Samaritan Ministries. Perhaps you're familiar with the healthcare sharing ministry. So I work on a staff. I'm one of 400 uh, workers at Samaritan Ministries. I only interact daily with you know, six of them, but it's a large group. Uh, some infrequent conversations with people all across the map of Christendom today. I work remotely. Uh, the company itself is based in Peoria, Illinois. So it was in the context of some interactions with co-workers, uh, with Samaritan Ministries that it came up, uh, but then also further reflecting on our Reformed heritage. And I've been a church planter in a couple different states, and it's something that as a church planter I often think, what makes this church we're trying to plant unique? Like, why are we here? And I think it's important for every um, church to think, what is our calling? You know, why are you all still in Lincoln? Why aren't you going to a church down the road, right? There's good reasons, I think, <laughs> and I'm glad you're here. One key reason we can latch on to in terms of staying within the Reformed faith and this cultural and theological heritage that we seek to carry forward by continuing to participate in this congregation is this understanding of images of Christ, not having images of Christ. Because there's many, many, and even conservative uh, broadly uh, faithful congregations in the United States worldwide today who think nothing of it, right? They're very faithful in other ways, maybe on only having men in office and the inspiration of Scripture and all of that. Praise the Lord. Uh, they are faithful. But on this, there's been slippage. So I want to encourage you in our shared understanding of how the second commandment should be applied. Because if we truly understand that Jesus is the divine Messiah, then the time-tested doctrine of the prohibition of images is well Founded. It is very important that we see Jesus. It's spoken of in Scripture to see Jesus, but that's not with our physical eyes. It's not with you know stained glass up on the wall. It's not with a picture book, coloring book for kids either. We see Jesus with the eye of faith. And uh, another brief application uh, to encourage you with. Uh, I said that uh, Paul. Here in verse 1 has Jesus Christ. I mentioned that he, in other times, even shortens it and kind of plays a little loose uh, with using Christ, which is technically a title, as a name. But his diversity is even greater than that. We see instances of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. 
uh, with the word order inverted, uh, we see Lord appended to the front, Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes Jesus Christ, our Lord, or just Christ by itself, as I said. So I just want to note Paul's flexibility in usage of our Savior's name. It encourage you in your liberty in referring to our Savior. Uh, Messianic Jews make a big thing of referring to Yeshua, right? As if that's the way you got to say it, and they're more authentic and sort of have an inroad to a true relationship with God because they use the right name. Well, I don't think that's found. Uh, much worse than that is Jehovah's Witnesses who dwell famously on Jehovah. They're not even going to go for Yish- uh, Yahweh. That's not good enough for them. Or Mormons. I've done ministry in Mormon lands who use Jesus Christ as if it's like one thing. You can't separate it. And so they're very legalistic on the usage of those terms. So friends, we're not bound by man-made traditions. We have liberty. We can enjoy this flexibility of using Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. Jesus. There's opportunities there to just kind of, I say, think afresh. Get out of some ruts maybe we're in in a conversation with a a neighbor, they might notice that we're speaking a little differently than their tradition is, and just gives us an opportunity to say, hey, this is how God has described himself through the the inspired author, Paul, and uh, it's an opportunity to do that. I hope that's an encouragement to you. Well, coming now uh, to the second point here, uh, the brief titles I have on my notes. Uh, The first was the name. Now we come to the second point, the work. So the work of Jesus Christ we're going to look at here. And I want to delve into one particular aspect of Paul's view of Jesus Christ, the divine Messiah. And to be clear, uh, this is by way of emphasis. I'm not saying that Paul only envisions Jesus this way. Definitely not. Uh, The epistle, Romans as a whole, shows a well-rounded approach with much detail and variety. But today, I want to briefly explore one standout Aspect that builds on the priestly anointing that I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, his anointing was for sacrificial service, right? As a mediator. And looking at all the mentions of Jesus in Romans, whether it is Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, etc., the most frequent point, again, just caution here so you don't come up to me later and say, but what about this? And what about this? So I'm granting all of those. But by way of emphasis, one thing that's particularly emphasized by Paul is the word through. It is through Jesus, the Greek dia. Uh, He is the means or instrument by which many great graces are affected and great results in the plan of redemption come to fruition. So let's take a look at a few of these verses in Romans and uh, I will read them. And if you want to read with me, I'll pause so you can catch up. So uh, the first general category of the usage of this word through would be situations where he is the author of the action, uh, as well as its instrument, or technically what we would call the efficient cause. So if you'd like, or it's certainly fine to just listen, Romans 5. Romans 5, uh, verse 16 to 19. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through 
the one Jesus Christ. So there are two different people through, right? First man, Adam. Second, Adam, Christ. And then finishing now uh, with verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteousness, sorry, righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. So you see the word through or by there. Also, a little bit earlier in uh, chapter 5, verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And the very first verse of that chapter, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians reign in life through Jesus Christ. That is, he is responsible for and carried out the acts by which we reign with him. Also, Christians have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, by the merit he earned, his perfect life, his satisfaction of God's wrath. And Christians have true joy through Jesus Christ. Right? His sacrifice gives us joy. We can't have true joy without our debt being paid, without being reconciled to God. And a second, uh, similar, though somewhat distinct category of the usage of this word uh, by Paul uh, to display for us and to explain for us uh, the way uh, the work, the way that Christ works on our behalf, the works He's done for us, is uh, situations where He is. And this is a kind of technical definition. I think this is from Thayer's lexicon. He is the instrument used to accomplish a thing that is by His service or His intervention. And here, if you come with me to Romans 1 and 2, and this is understood to be the way it's used in Romans 1 and 5, through him, so he is the instrument to accomplish a thing, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith, and then in 2.16, in a day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That is Paul's gospel. So, Jesus is the one who will judge our secrets. So, the focal point here is that Jesus is the one through whom the great work of reconciliation, of redemption, of salvation is done. The name Jesus Christ is not empty. Right? It's significant. It's not just some intellectual thing to know. It has an effect. It clearly reflects who he is, and what he does for his people. And here by way of application, uh, maybe, and I'm not trying to be clever here, though it did come out in two words that have alliteration. He's not the nameplate that we simply paste on our website or on the front door of the building or name drop here and there in our conversation, right, saying we're Christians or I believe in Jesus. Jesus is not a nameplate. He is our namesake. As Christians, we are named after him. This is because he is the one through whom we are saved, justified, rescued from wrath, through whom righteousness is revealed, through whom we thank God for the grace given us in our lives, through whom we rejoice. Right? So everything we have and are is because of him. He's not our nameplate. He is our namesake. So may that be significant for us just every day, living before the face of God, as they say, Coram Deo. May we recognize and grow in having Christ as our namesake.
Well, now coming to our third point, third and final uh, section here, which I titled The Relationship. So we have the name, we have the work, so the name of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, and now the relationship of Jesus Christ. I don't want to leave us with the idea that Jesus is who he is, first of all, is like an intellectual uh, dictionary <coughs> fact, but all that would be the first point if we stop there. I also don't want to leave us with the second point. If we stop now thinking, well, he is who he is insofar as he's the one who authored and acted upon, uh, possessed merit for us and accomplished these great acts, you know, very important acts, saving us from our sins, freeing us from guilt, satisfying the Father's wrath. Those are immensely important, right? And the thing I want to get to wouldn't happen without those, but again, to stop with those truths, and they are very true, is not sufficient. So they are true, his work, vitally important, essential. There is no other way to accomplish what I'm about to speak of without what he did. And of course, that's a mistake that many religions, well, I'd say every religion makes the mistake of thinking the individual can do it. What's unique about Christ is saying that Jesus did it, not us. Jesus did it. So the work is essential. But what was the purpose of the work? That's what I want to bring our attention to now. What did the work get us to? Was it just to check the boxes on a to-do list of reconciliation tasks? Uh, no. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. So the way I want to accomplish this is maybe try to read with me. I want to sort of briefly paraphrase Romans 1, 1 through 6. And so for you to see what I've termed the rhetorical progression from Jesus to gospel to Jesus. And by rhetorical, I mean his use, Paul's use of rhetoric, his use of language, uh, how he speaks this out, so to speak. I mean, he's writing, but as we read it and hear it, it's speaking. So I'm going to paraphrase this, and hopefully you can see, as I cut out some words and simplify things, the progression from Jesus to gospel to Jesus. So we begin with Paul as a servant of Jesus, he is called as an apostle and separated to the gospel that concerns Jesus, who was promised long ago. He's called an apostle and separated to the gospel. I'm sorry, I repeated that sentence. Uh, third point. Uh, this Jesus was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. This Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. That's verse 4. It is through this Jesus that we grow in and manifest the faith in the whole world for him. Verse 5. And then the Christians in Rome were part of that elect group who belonged to Jesus. Let me state another way to emphasize the gospel. So we're kind of zeroing in here. Paul, again, kind of follow along with me. Paul is in the employ of Jesus for the cause of the gospel. The gospel was promised long ago, as we have that worded there from the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. What is the gospel about? It concerns Jesus. The gospel declares Jesus to be the Son of God. Jesus, by the gospel, gave us grace for obedience in the world. And finally, by Jesus, in the gospel, Christians belong to Jesus. That's what it means, that last phrase there in verse 6. We are the called of Jesus Christ. So saying it in that way, I hope you can hear the connection. Maybe by conversation later, this will make more sense. I apologize for my weakness and being able to articulate it as clearly as may be needed thus far. But to add some helpful words, hopefully, and so where I'm headed with this, my purpose is for you to see the connection or the intertwining or the association of Jesus and the gospel. The gospel is central to Jesus 
and Jesus is central to the gospel. The gospel is not mere historical acts. It is historical acts, right? It's a heresy to say that these historical things didn't actually happen. It's just the stories about things that's important. That's not true. Be careful when some liberal tells you that that's the way it is. It's not. So I'm affirming historical acts are essential. But I'm also saying that the result of those historical acts is the key thing. So the gospel is not merely a list of historical facts that came to pass, like a divine to-do list of the Old Testament times that was checked off in the New Testament era with a few steps still waiting in the future with our glorification. Rather, the gospel, insofar as as it is the atonement and the resurrection and justification, those steps, as it were, the Ordo Salutis, we might speak of it in Romans 8. So it is those steps that brought us into relationship with Jesus and in him with the triune God. That's the essential result, is that we have relationship with God. Of course, we couldn't have relationship with God if we weren't justified, if we weren't sanctified, etc. So that's why those steps, which are based in history, are essential. Uh, Think of it this way. Uh, Focusing in on justification, as you're probably familiar, justification is a legal act. Uh, God the judge states that we are free of the charges against us. And he can be just and the justifier because somebody stands in our place, right? God isn't skipping out on justice when he forgives us. No, justice is satisfied because the penalty fell on Jesus. So that's the whole um, legal background for justification. Try to draw an analogy. All analogies are flawed, but hopefully to press this no further than is helpful. Consider the case of a person charged with uh, reckless driving and their license is taken away. With a substitutionary atonement, uh, so somebody coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to pay his fine, he's clear, it's all good, they'll get their license back. And actually to add a detail, um, they got pulled over for reckless driving when they were trying to go visit their grandma. Right? So they need the car, they need their license to drive the car to go visit grandma. But they didn't make it there because they were abusing the privilege. They had not driven safely. But now, through a substitutionary atonement, justice is done. They have their license back. So the result in that courtroom is... Not merely to say, I've got my license. Thanks, I'm going to go home and sit on the couch. No. The point is to get your license back, get back on the road, and continue on to Grandma. So you can be a blessing to her, so you can have that relationship with Grandma. So they do have their driver's license, and they can drive, and they need to drive. So to take that analogy further, as a sanctified driver, they drive better than they did before, and they go to the destination to establish that relationship that was their original intention. So you probably get where I'm going with this. Returning to the gospel of Jesus, originally we had fellowship with God, right? Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with him in the cool of the day. But that was fatally broken. Would it be good news to have your sins forgiven and your debt of sin cleared and not belong to Jesus, as it says in verse 6, and to just go your way? Well, that wouldn't be good news because you wouldn't actually be fulfilling what you were made to do. Would it be good news to have eternal life but not see his face, as it's worded in 1 Corinthians 13 and Romans 22? Of course not, right? Having been renewed, we are now enabled 
urged by the Holy Spirit in us. And finally, we do, in our glorified bodies, get to see God face to face. We fulfill the continuing, the reestablishment of that relationship that was sadly broken in the garden. But let us not merely stop with knowing that we have been forgiven, but begin, friends, to do what we are now able to do because we don't have the sin in the way. We don't have the brokenness between us and the triune God. The brokenness is healed. The judgment is satisfied. We are at peace with our God. So the gospel is good news. Of course, that's the definition of the word there. The gospel is good news because it makes us new creations. And therefore, we can and we will be with God. That was the original creation. And this is what the long-term solution is forever. Do you long for that? We need to, more so. Long to be with God. And be assured of it. Not because we're so good, but because God is so good. And let me finally, in closing here, quote from 2 Corinthians 4 through 4, verse 6. Paul writes there, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I pray that this all has been helpful uh, to you as you read these basic words. It's easy to pass over the salutation here in this epistle, Paul, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Let us not skim over it, but let us meditate on it. Let us be challenged by it. Let us be comforted by it. Let us celebrate it, right? We have joy in Christ, having been united to our God. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for raising up Paul, a faithful man in his generation, so violent against you, so prideful in his early years. But you, Lord, were merciful. You took away the blinders on his eyes. You humbled him, brought him to his knees, restored his physical sight and the sight of his soul to see you and to know you. And for each of us here today, the calls on the name of the Lord Jesus in salvation, it is the same. We have been made new. We are not going to be apostles. We don't need to be. <laughs> We've been made Christians, which is essential if we want to have right relationship with you. So we thank you, Lord, for the privilege, for the opportunity in days to come to be your salt and light in this crooked generation, knowing that you're doing a good work through us. And may we be satisfied in you, in no one, and nothing else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.